Chapter 1 of Against the Stone Beasts by James Blish Read by Edmund Bloxham The letters on the fly-specked glass were simple, almost dogmatic. Anderson eyed them with some amusement. Art agents seldom have any tastes, he thought. Can't afford to. The sign repeated, special showing of surrealist paintings, and declined to offer further information. Anderson started to walk on, then hovered indecisively. Modern arts of all kinds were his province in preparation for a doctorate thesis. It wouldn't do to let the smallest example go without inspection. He went in. The improvised gallery was musty with the odour of departed vegetables and very cold. Like the sign, the show had been set up with a braggart simplicity. No programmes, no furniture, no eager guides. There were not even any guards. Anderson wondered what was to stop a thief from stooping under the heavy rayon rope which kept the frames out of reach of curious or greedy fingers and making off with the whole collection. With his first look at the paintings themselves, Anderson was blessing his good demon fervently for having guided his footsteps. He could not place the works in any specific category. They certainly were not surrealistic, unless the word had been used in its original meaning of super-realistic. The artist had used fantasy for his sources, true enough, but the results were not the usual shapelessness. He angled his long body over the rope and inspected the nearest one. It was a huge canvas, reaching almost to the floor, and it depicted a building or a similar structure, like a glistening glass rod, rising from a forest of lesser rods toward a red sun of almost tangible hotness. A single figure, man-like, but borne aloft in taut, delicate wings, which suggested a bat rather than a human, floated over the nearest of the towers. A quick glance revealed that all the paintings but one contained several of these shapes. The one exception was a field of stars with a torpedo streaking across it. His quick glance confirmed another suspicion. The scenes were in deliberate order, as if attempting a pictorial history of the flying people. He felt vaguely disappointed. This stuff was garden-variety fantasy, verging on the conceptions of science fiction. Still, there was a magnificent technique behind it all, a blending and a facing of brushstrokes which made the Dutch look like billboard splashes, and a mastery of glaze which made each scene glow like an illuminated transparency. This last painting by the door, for instance, it showed the translucent city again, with approximately the same details, but with a barely perceptible dimming of the red sunlight. A single tower, jaggedly shattered, a few other tiny touches, the artist had given it an atmosphere of almost unbearable desolation. It was the same fabulous metropolis, but it was tragic, deserted, lost. Peering hopelessly from the summit of the broken tower was a tiny face, looking directly upward at Anderson. He allowed himself an appreciative shudder, and methodically went around the gallery, following the history the pictures built up. It seemed commonplace enough, a race of space travellers who had colonised the earth, perhaps some time in the dim past, had built a civilization, and had finally succumbed to some undepicted doom. What was amazing was the utterly convincing way the well-worn story was told. It was real. Super-real, indeed, for it commanded more belief and sympathy than the everyday human tragedy. Anderson took out his fountain pen and an unopened letter and walked toward the door. He must get the address of this place, 
an attempt to locate the artist. John Kimball's inscription on the envelope reminded him that Johnny, though a scientist, dabbled in the arts and would be interested. He ripped open the flap, then stopped in mid-stride, ducking under the rayon cord to look at the spaceship scene. In many ways this was the most wonderful of the lot. Even a night sky or a telescope filled has no depth. It is merely a black surface containing spots of light. But the picture surpassed nature. It had a stereoscopic quality, all the more startling because it was impossible to ascertain how it was done. Anderson noted with a chuckle that the agent had placed the paintings in such order that there was a strong draft blowing toward the picture as if being drained away into that awesome vacuum. A strictly phony technique, but clever nonetheless. Curious in spite of his better instincts, he put out a tentative finger to the surface of the scene. The fountain pen clattered to the floor. He gaped idiotically and stirred with his finger at the nothingness where the picture still seemed to be. In his shock-numbed mind, two words burned fiercely. It's real. Ridiculous. Tensely, he forced himself to move his hand in deeper against the yelling of his nerves. It struck a slight, tingling resistance, like a curtain of static electricity, and then the blood was pounding in each finger as if trying to burst through the skin. He snatched the hand back. There was a vacuum there, cut off from the room by some unseen force through which the air was leaking rapidly. Teetering on the edge of panic, he struggled to make better sense of the facts. The prickly pounding he had felt in his fingers might well have been electrical, and only that, and Johnny Kimball had once demonstrated for him the static jet which might explain the draft of air. Three-dimensional television, perhaps. He shook his head. No inventor would set up a demonstration like this in an abandoned grocery without any announcement or literature, nor would there be likely to be eighteen screens, each one showing a motionless and quite impossible scene. No, it was insane, but these garish things were... windows. Into what? Clutching at his frayed emotions, he took a step toward the next frame. His foot crunched on the forgotten fountain pen. For a second he flailed in terror at nothing, and then pitched head foremost over the low ledge. After a moment the sweet piping spoke again. You are not hurt. The mental shock will pass shortly. Anderson said nothing, and stared fixedly at the crimson glow underneath his eyelids. Physically he was unhurt, but his sanity was precarious. In his mind, behind the closed lids, happened over and over again, the long twisting fall, with a great city spinning and growing beneath him in a riot of colour, and damp hot air gushing past him, the sudden swooping of the dark figure, and the thrum of wings. He tried to pass out again, and awaken on the floor of the gallery, but the cold, chiming voice jabbed him awake again. This is quite real. You are intelligent enough to accept it. Stop thinking like an infant. The motherly reprimand, under such circumstances, planted a small germ of amusement somewhere in his mind, and he grasped it frantically and began to laugh, still keeping his eyes clenched shut. Even without seeing its face, he could feel the creature's alarm at his hysteria, but he allowed the shaking to exhaust him into a sort of calmness. Only when his breathing had become controlled and even did he allow himself the second look. Red sunlight played harshly in upon him through the translucent walls of the small room, 
and burned sullenly within the crystal bar which crossed above his head. One wall was recessed with what seemed to be bookshelves, and odd articles of furniture stood here and there, but evidently none of them had been designed for humans, for he was lying on the smooth floor, his jacket bunched under his head. The cowled shape still arched over him with satanic solicitude, black against the glare, and somehow smaller than he had expected it to be. He hoped that that cape would not expand into wings. Not yet, for his new calm still stood at the shimmering verge of madness. Thank you, he said carefully. I owe you my life. The silhouetted head moved, as if to dismiss the matter. Your sudden appearance in midair was startling. We were fortunate that I happened to be in flight at the time. With a whispering sound, like the rustling of heavy cloth, the figure moved out of the direct rays of the sun and settled gracefully against one of the furniture-like things. The light struck it full, and Anderson gasped and sat bolt upright. She was winged, no doubt about that, but the bat-like impression those wings had given him seemed to have been only a product of distance. Seen in close-up, the wings were tawny and delicate, and traced with intricate veins. Their ribs were close-set, the webbing like the sheerest silk. They rose from the girl's back, where her shoulder-blades should have been, and at rest curved around her sides and made a backdrop for her legs and feet. Except for those gorgeous pinions which set her off like two great Japanese fans, she might have been human, or close to it. She no more suggested the rodent than the goddess Diana would have suggested a female gorilla. The wings, something about the bony structure underlying her face, a vague otherness about her proportions. Except for these minute differences, she could have passed anywhere for a strikingly lovely human girl. Her clothing was brief and simple, and not weighted with ornaments, for she needed free limbs and no useless baggage for flight. Anderson realized that he was gargling and rearranged his face as best he could. She did not seem to take his amazed inspection as anything but normal, however. Are you a time traveller? she asked, tilted her head curiously. We would think of no other explanation. Are you from our track? I don't know, Anderson confessed. My trip was accidental, and the mechanism is a mystery to me. He considered asking about the gallery, but the girl's questions had already told him it would be fruitless. He masked his emotions in the mechanism of locating and lighting a cigarette, while the girl waited with polite patience. It was hard to forget that there was an obscure doom prophesied, or had it been merely narrated as historical fact, for this exquisite creature and her whole civilization, and he was determined to say nothing about it until he knew what he was talking about. I discovered in my time a sort of gateway to your time and to seventeen other nearly synchronous moments set up by scientists unknown to me. Each of the gates seems to open upon one single specific instance. For instance, before I fell into the one which brought me here, I saw a figure I'm sure was yours, and it was motionless above the city all the time that I was watching it. He broke off suddenly. Wait a minute. If this is another time, well, suppose you tell me, am I speaking your language, or do you know mine, or are you a telepath? She laughed, each sound a clear musical tone, as if she'd been struck by a desire to sing the bell song. Don't you know your own language when you hear it? No, the Vares are not telepathic. Few races are. But a truly telepathic race allied with us has provided our culture with a good stock of equipment 
for tapping various parts of the mind. We use it for education. We simply tap to your language centres while you are unconscious. A shadow passed across the glowing wall, and he heard the already familiar hum of wings. A moment later, a newcomer was outlined in the sunlight in a low doorway, which seemed to open an empty space. It was a man this time, a figure almost exactly Anderson's height, and perhaps a little older, though it was hard to judge. He smiled unpleasantly at the human, revealing two upper incisors, which were slightly larger than the rest of his teeth, and demanded, Well, what time is he? What time are you? Anderson countered. We have no record of you in our history. You could have flourished, died, or moved on a dozen times without our knowing it. Our records go back only three thousand years. Well taken, de Varan said, making himself comfortable in one of the odd chairs. We're not native here, of course, but so far we've found no mammals on this planet, except a few egg-laying ones that aren't even entirely warm-blooded yet, so you must be a considerable distance in our future. Furthermore, you're a time-traveller, which means that you know more than we do, for time is a problem we have never broken. The girl shook her head slowly. All traces of her former laughter vanished. It's no use, Attell. He's here by accident, and isn't a scientist. What's the matter? Anderson said. Both faces looked so sombre that he nearly forgot his own problem. Are you in trouble? We're at war, the girl said softly, and we shall probably be exterminated, all of us, before the year is over. Anderson remembered again the picture of the deserted city, and despite the hot sun, he felt the same chill. This planet you call Earth, Attell said, has no life on its surface now with enough intelligence to count up to three. But after we had been here fifty-three of its years, we discovered that Earth has a civilization of its own, all the same, inside. A dozen legends chased through Anderson's mind at once. Cave-dwellers of some sort? It hardly seems credible. No, not cave-dwellers. These aren't even solid, and they couldn't live in caves. They live in the Earth, in the rock itself, and all the way down to the core. They are space beasts. They move through solid matter, just as you and I move through space, and are stopped by space, as we are stopped by a solid wall. In the air, for instance, we're safe from them, for what is to us a thin gas is for them a viscous, almost rigid medium. In the oceans we meet on equal terms, but true solids are their natural medium. How did you discover them? They discovered us, the girl said. They have besieged the city ever since the fifty-third year after our landing. They're invisible, of course, but we can see them as openings in the earth. The openings change shape as they move, and of course no natural pit does that. In their own universe, the hollow earth, bounded by its solid atmosphere. They're flying creatures, and their sense of gravity is the reverse of ours. Her clear, fluting voice became slightly duller, losing its inflection as the tale went on. Before we came here, she said, we had encountered what our scientists call countermatter, matter of opposite electrical nature to ours. But this complete inversion of space-matter relationships was unknown to us. The space beasts knew about it. They are bent on driving us from the earth. Anderson felt his mind reeling into hysteria again. It was difficult enough to accept a spotless, shining glass chamber and the two-winged Varez, but this story of an inside-out universe and its air-treading masters, if only John Kimball had been the one to hear it. 
Sometimes, Attell said reflectively, I think the Varez have earned their defeat. There was a time when we were carrying a fight into the enemy's own cosmos. But it was their cosmos, not ours, and they knew it very well. Our change of state, while it enabled us to see our foes, could not change our mental orientation. We were lost in that hollow darkness. We could not forget that each great gulf was actually a mountain. The sudden chasms were buildings we ourselves had built, and the things like tiny burrows which kept opening and closing all about our feet were the footfalls of our brothers, and the space beasts swooped upon us, each of them with six tiers of wings muttering against the solid magma of the earth, and our weapons were crude and worthless. Anderson's mind tasted the concept and rejected it with a shudder. But surely, he said, as steady as he could, you must have better weapons now. Oh yes, we have weapons, but we are decadent and have lost the initiative to be the aggressors. The machines that accomplished the reversal of state for our ancestors have lain idle for a century in the bowels of our city. We no longer understand them. We are dying, first of all, of old age. The space beasts are the accident that speeds us along the way. Shall I tell you what we use against them now? The girl stirred protestingly. Anderson looked at her, but she would not return the glance. Attell went on relentlessly. Look. From under his tunic, he produced a heavy, long metal rod. A club, but I don't see how... It's hollow, Attell said succinctly. The metal, of course, is useless, but the vacuum inside is still hard to them. Space crushing into space, and gouts of hard radiation bursting like blood from the contact. That's all we have now. That and a feeble, energizing process which sometimes seals off the foundations of the city. Walls and clubs. Our last, miserable recourses. And then... Then the space beasts will own the earth again.